trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there and welcome to the show. I am so glad you could be part of my audience today. I know there are so many voices out there, so many sources of information. You know that you would even give me a shot. Thank you. Now I'm going to do my best to make it worth your while. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, and Pure-Light.com. You've heard me talk about these amazing light bulbs. Um, they really are incredible. And if you if you have pet odors in your house, let's I don't know, you have an area where you keep cats, this is something you should really take a look at. I have links to each one of these sponsors in the show notes. You can check those out at the com. Now, I got to warn you right up front, I'm, I'm going to talk about some stuff today that uh, I, I know I'm going to sound like Chicken Little or maybe I'm going to sound like a broken record. But, but we're going to spend some time today talking about uh, why it matters that, that liberty is in peril. And I recognize, you know, if you're one of those people who says something about it, you see it, too, and you say something to the people. Does this look right to you? You're probably getting a lot of side eye, right? People are uncomfortable. Oh, I really wish you wouldn't talk about that. Sometimes people get angry. Now, what was the saying I saw earlier today? Uh, something about the only people who get mad at you for speaking the truth are people who are living a lie. So keep speaking the truth. And, and, and by the way, that doesn't mean they're terrible people. It just means they're not ready to confront something, an idea or a truth that uh, that would cause them to have to reevaluate, you know, what they hold to be true. But I figure if this matters to you, then let's let's talk about the the uh, the danger to liberty. I've got a great article here from George Leaf. This was shared on the foundation. Uh, I'm sorry, the F Future of Freedom Foundation's website, FFF.org. George Leaf is the author, and it's a review of a book by Randall Holcomb from the Independent Institute. The book is called Liberty in Peril, Democracy and Power in American History. Now, before I share this with you or any of the other topics that I have picked out this hour, I have to I have to make sure you understand my goal here is not to make you angry. It's not to make you fearful. I'm not trying to paint things in the worst possible light, you know, so that uh, so that you'll, you know, out of fear, you know, crowd a little closer to my side to get away from it. No. I just think it's it's we're at such a unique place in history. And and it's tough for people to speak the truth. It, it can make you very unpopular, but there are some truths that I honestly believe have to be faced. And I'm just I'm so grateful for the people who have the courage to do that. Not everybody does. And that doesn't mean they're inferior and somehow they're weak and they're less than you. There are just priorities that you have in your life that makes the truth matter more than the need to feel comfortable or to hear, you know, comforting and assur assurances in your ears. Not that there's any shortage of people who will tell you comforting assurances, even as they're slipping their hand into your pocket or slipping a straitjacket around you. So Liberty in Peril is a book that, uh, that George Leaf had just read. And he says, I have yet to hear any candidate say the word liberty. As he looks back over like the 2020 election, this is when he was reading Paul Holcomb's book. 
And he says, I, I didn't hear any candidate say the word, word liberty, and I would have been shocked if they did. Now, think about this. He says, we're bombarded with messages for candidates and messages merely imploring us to vote. Some Americans relish what they think they'll get as a result of the election. Others dread what they fear will happen. But he says, in any case, we accept that for all its flaws, democracy is the way the United States is supposed to work. And we almost never think about whether the policies the candidates favor are consonant with the freedom Americans are supposed to have, freedom to live their lives as they choose. So in his book, Holcomb, who's a professor of economics at Florida State, argues that democracy was not the way this country was supposed to work. Our founding philosophy was not that democracy should prevail, but instead that liberty should prevail. That the reason for government was to protect the individual's freedom, not to subject him to the will of the majority. Yeah, do you suppose that's taught in school? I don't think it was taught when I was going to school, but hey... George Leaf says over time, the philosophy of liberty has been shoved aside and today democracy rules to the point where, as the author puts it, liberty has an almost quaint air about it. This is one of the reasons why it's kind of tough to talk about with with people. It's like a foreign language to them. Now, George Leaf says, as the book's subtitle suggests, this is a work of history, looking at the shift from the ideology of liberty to the ideology of democracy. Holcomb observes there is tension between the two. Under the ideology of liberty, the important question is how to put limits on government so that it can protect individual rights, while under the ideology of democracy, the question is who will hold power to do what the public wants. So where the former prevails, the people tend to have a healthy wariness about government and a desire to keep it in check. Where the latter, the people eagerly listen to politicians who promise them benefits from the government. Ouch. That's right on. So Holcomb begins his history not with the Constitution or even with the colonists, but with the Iroquois, the largest confederation of Indians that the European settlers had to deal with. Now, the Iroquois had an unwritten constitution, and its key principle was unanimity. Colonists who became familiar with the Iroquois system commented on its absolute notion of liberty. The Iroquois had a great council composed of tribal chiefs, but it did not act like we expect legislatures to act, imposing decisions on the people. Instead, the Great Council facilitated the building of consensus among the tribes. Questions were debated, then the chiefs would return to their tribes to assess the sense of their members. Not until a proposal, and he says, I wish Holcomb had said what kinds of issues the Iroquois dealt with, was acceptable to all the tribes, was it adopted. That debate it until we have consensus mode meant little was done, but that was to the Iroquois preferable to forcing people to abide by rules they had not agreed to. We would call it common consent. What a plan. Now, the article says the British colonists found it frustrating to deal with the Iroquois because their representatives always said, we must take this proposal back to our great council for consideration. But they incorporated the unanimity principle into their own Albany plan of union drafted in 1754. Now, that plan was never put into effect, but it called for unanimous consent among the colonies for any action to be taken. Consensus was required not majority rule. I know people are thinking, well, how could that work in a country of, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people? Wouldn't that mean very little got done by government? And I'm like, okay, what's, you, you say that like it's a bad thing. Are we, are we supposed to, are we supposed to not think that's great? 
Back to the article. The first government formed in the United States was the Articles of Confederation, adopted in 1781. Now, most historians brush right on past the Articles, but Holcomb thinks them worth analysis. He says, under the Articles, we had a unicameral legislature without any federal executive or judiciary. Proposed amendments required unanimous consent. Now, this meant the central government had little power, as you would expect from a people who had just waged a long war to be rid of a government with, most thought, too much power to violate individual liberties. The central government couldn't levy taxes directly, but had to fund requests from the states. Holcomb find, finds virtue in that arrangement, since, he, since each state could decide whether the expected benefit of turning funds over to central government was worth giving up the best use of those funds within its own borders. He says life in the United States under the Articles was less than ideal, particularly in the way some states interfered with interstate commerce. But those problems might have been dealt with by amending them. Indeed, that was the very purpose of the convention called in 1787 that we call the Constitutional Convention. It was supposed to be a convention for considering amendments to the Articles. And more than a few of the delegates objected to the way certain leaders decided to draft an entirely new plan of government instead. And for all the, con the Constitution's restrictions on federal authority and its famous checks and balances, Holcomb finds that liberty was much more secure under the Articles. Now, that was especially so because the federal government was no longer accountable to the states, but was a power center unto itself. Furthermore, consensus was diluted because the Constitution could be amended with only two-thirds of the states agreeing, rather than all. And, most troubling of all, the powers given to the federal government were vaguely worded, such as to regulate commerce and promote the general welfare. So while the drafters of the Constitution were fearful of democracy, they opened the door to its growth. I'm going to hit the pause button here because we're coming up on our break, but um, I, for me, that kind of stings. But then I'm, I'm one of those people who believes that uh, the Constitution, I believe, uh, while not Scripture, I believe was put to the pen by uh, men whom God prepared and raised up for that purpose. They weren't perfect. And you and I should take that as good news because I don't think either one of us is perfect either. But I believe that, uh, I believe there is... I believe the hand of divine providence played a role not only in the founding of the country, but also in the writing of the Constitution. And if it has imperfections, well, remember, these guys were doing the best they could under the circumstances. We'll come back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm reading an article here that I found. This was actually in my email inbox, of all places. It's because I subscribe to the uh, the daily emails from the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. And I would recommend, if you want to stay informed on a number of great issues, uh, particularly involving free market economics and personal freedom, freedom of conscience, you know, politics, but from a principled standpoint, Really, you should consider subscribing to this. The article we're looking at is Liberty in Peril. This is a review of a book uh, written by, uh, what's the guy's name here? Jacob, no, sorry, Psst, wrong name, Randall Holcomb. Randall Holcomb. Uh, George Leaf is the one doing the review of this book. It is such a powerful 
contrast of how liberty was the th- that was the reason why the founders set up the government the way that they did. That was the goal. The goal was that liberty would prevail. Period. But over time, we have instead strayed towards something called democracy, which is not about the government protecting each and every individual's God-given natural rights, but rather, well, uh, the majority controls the political power to make everybody do you know, what the majority wants. And it's a world of difference. And right now we're sitting on the sharp end of it. And it uh, is not very fun. So more of the historical perspective. In the decades prior to the Civil War, democracy slowly gained ground against liberty. An intriguing instance was the reform of the post office back in 1851. See, up until then, it had operated as a profitable public entity, charging differential rates. Under the new law, rates were made uniform, thus subsidizing postal customers in remote western areas at the expense of those in heavily po- the heavily populated east. Now, the upshot was that government was beginning to pick winners and losers through policy. The Civil War, or War Between the States, as Holcomb argues, as it's, it's more accurately called, vastly expanded the power of the federal government and put the states in a subservient position. The promotion of the economic interests of some Americans at the expense of others became widespread and blatant. In fact, an egregious example was the way the lobbying group for Union Veterans, the Grand Army of the Republic, managed to expand benefits dramatically, covering more and more soldiers and their families with increasingly large payments. An interesting historical note Holcomb includes is that President Grover Cleveland, who had been popular with the GAR until 1887, lost its favor when he vetoed a bill that he thought went too far. He denied them more benefits? Ah, perish the thought. In fact, a large reason for Cleveland's loss the following year to reliably pro-veteran Benjamin Harrison was a bit of that was that bit of fiscal responsibility. Also, the decades after the Civil War, during that time, economic regulation meant to benefit some groups at the expense of others. It was very common. The distinct but related populist and progressive movements drove the country further into democracy and away from the protection of liberty. For example, states were given the green light by the Supreme Court to interfere in private contracts by dictating prices that grain elevator owners could charge farmers. Government had turned from protecting liberty to promoting the economic interests of politically influential groups. And, of course, the same thing was true for regulation of railroad rates by the Interstate Commerce Commission. And the government also intervened in the money issue by first printing great quantities of paper money, greenbacks, and then later putting great quantities of silver into circulation at the behest of debtors who didn't want to repay their debts in gold that was appreciating in value. Now, the First World War led to a burst of government activity that undercut liberty, including freedom of speech. But after the end of this war, there was a return to normalcy under Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge. Even during this period, this wasn't one where liberty regained much lost ground. The War Finance Corporation, began during, or begun during the war, remained alive throughout the 1920s to make business and agricultural loans. The Inland Waterways Corporation was created to operate barges on the Mississippi River and the Agricultural Credits Act to lend money to farmers. And in 1924, the nation's first Immigration Act was passed, among other federal interventions having nothing to do with the protection of liberty. Moreover, during the 1920s, the government was very active in pursuing antitrust cases, attacking business operations simply because they were too big and supposedly threatened competition. So in short, the bad habit of extending the government's scope was not cured at all during the Roaring Twenties. 
and then it got much worse under Calvin Coolidge's successor, Herbert Hoover. Hoover, notes Holcomb, was a progressive who thought that government authority should be exerted to improve the country. And then once the Depression began on his watch to bring the country out of it. Most politicians in both parties favored federal policies meant to revive the economy, but they made, they made things worse during Hoover's administration. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt took over in 1933, his whirlwind of federal activism dramatically transformed the nation. Numerous boards, commissions, and agencies issued mandates and prohibitions, liberties that Americans had always assumed were theirs, such as the freedom to set their own prices or grow what they chose on their land, were abrogated. By the way, if this isn't making you just a tiny bit hot under your collar as, as you are being walked through this little segment of American history, it should. I mean, it should, it should at least make you uncomfortable. But this is how we got from there to here. It didn't come all at once. It's been coming little by little over generations. The article says for a while, the Supreme Court blocked some although not all of the government's authoritarian programs on constitutional grounds. But after Roosevelt's court-packing proposal in 1937, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes came around to the new progressive understanding of the government's proper role. Social Security is a good example. Nowhere in the Constitution is government authorized to run a retirement program. But as Holcomb writes, if the Constitution thus interpreted gives the federal government the power to run a compulsory retirement program, it's difficult to see any constitutional limits on the programs that the federal government is permitted to undertake. After World War II, governmental power kept ratcheting up, more slowly under Republican presidents, rapidly under Democratic ones, especially Lyndon Johnson and Barack Obama. I think, I think Joe Biden is really trying to outdo both of them. Maybe, maybe all of these, maybe trying to outdo FDR. How crazy is that? The article says there have always been people who prefer to get what they want through predation rather than production, Holcomb observes. In our early history, the producers were protected by the law, but now the predators are fully in control, using the law as a sword to take from and control the producers. So, in the end, George Leaf says Holcomb is deeply pessimistic. Liberty is certainly in peril what's left of it. A utilitarian undercurrent, he writes, has arisen in, a nation, in the nation that is willing to weigh the costs of sacrificing a little more liberty in exchange for other goals. In other words, liberty is not taken for granted. He says it is willingly sacrificed. So this leads us to the big question of the hour. Can anything rekindle the love that Americans once had for liberty and reverse the upward ratchet of government control? George Leaf says, well, our author doesn't address that question, but he says, I believe that our only hope is a revival of moral education in America. Now, before I complete that sentence, I want you to gauge your reaction. Oh, moral education. Is he telling us we need to go to Sunday school? No, it's, it's much more simple than that. You don't even have to believe in God to understand this. He says, our only hope is a revival of moral education in America so that children are taught that it is just as wrong to get the government to use coercion as it is for them to do so themselves. See how simple that is? And, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that is the, that's, that's the dividing line between people who understand the proper role of government and those who don't. Because people who don't understand what proper, legitimate government, government that governs with the consent of the governed is based on it's the idea that it, too, must follow the laws. And what would be immoral 
for you or for me to do at an individual level does not become moral when guys in suits put words on paper and vote it and say vote for it and say thus make it so somehow we got to get back to that and i believe that uh, that's going to come from training up uh, young people to understand that there is such a thing as right and wrong including what government can rightly do and what it should not be allowed to do i don't think it's going to happen everywhere all at once but i guarantee you the young people in my life, starting with my own kids, they're definitely being exposed to this idea. I really hope it takes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, hopefully I haven't uh, filled you with a sense of dread. But I think sometimes we just have to look at, uh, you know, where we are right now. And I, this is a really unsettling time. And it's for so many different reasons. I look around and I see uh, storm clouds, you know, of an economic type on the, on the horizon. Uh, of course, politically, there's always conflict and there's always, you know, uh, you know the, that uh, struggle over power. Whatever gets politicized becomes a power struggle. It's uh, it's interesting culturally what's happening. And, and we're going to talk about some of the there, there's an article that I'm, I'm going to link to. That uh, I, I'm not going to go into great detail on it, but essentially it's about the inevitable end of a ruling elite who expect us to submit to their demands or else. And if you have been feeling discouraged over what you see as a loss of personal freedoms, sometimes it's good to step back and recognize this is not the first time in history that uh, people have been you know, filled with hubris and with the, the desire to, to rule other people and willing to, to go to almost any ends to do it. Well, I've got an article linked in the show notes at the com. This is by Max Morton. And he talks about uh, the inevitable end of a ruling elite. And I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis. He's got some great history here. Um, he's, he cites uh, Sun Tzu and, you know, the art of war and, and describes how in the past when people made a play for absolute complete control of another people or another nation or whatever it was, they had a choice. Because you, you face a couple of different kinds of, of fighters. You know, some people will surrender if they believe that, hey, I can, I can possibly negotiate my way back to freedom if I'm just taken prisoner. But some people, uh, you know, they'll just fight you to the death and th- they feel like they have nothing to lose in so doing. This is something we've seen a lot in, in some of the uh, so-called war on terror over in the Middle East. People will literally blow themselves up because they see American troops as invaders in their land. Not necessarily because they're, you know, part of ISIS or they're part of, you know, some terrorist cause. They just feel like I, I would rather die than than live under, you know, these conditions. So anciently, when you had people in a position where um, you are you have the capacity to destroy them, but. You want to leave them what's called like a golden bridge. That's a retreat option for a defeated enemy. With that, the enemy is less likely to fight you to the death and your side suffers fewer casualties. This is where Sun Tzu's thinking comes in. But the other approach is the one that was used by, for instance, the Nazis. 
Nazi Germany's army would would use what they called the cauldron or Kessel approach. That's where you surround the enemy, you give them absolutely no option, and then proceed to utterly destroy them, meaning you take few, if any, prisoners. That that cauldron approach is what seems to be adopted by elites. And that means when when push comes to shove, when they say you submit or else, they're not going to they're not going to back down. And part of the reason why is because they think they can fight this coming conflict by proxies. In other words, they're enforcement agencies. They're they're mercenaries. The people who collect a paycheck from them will do what they say. And they think they're going to be safe, you know, while their mouth-breathing dimwits are out there fighting and dying. Um, They'll be sipping champagne safely ensconced behind barbed wire or fences in D.C. and on Martha's Vineyard. But the bottom line is those proxies aren't enough. And those proxies can actually turn on them if need be. And if you think, well, this is just, you know, this just sounds like, you know, conspiracy theory stuff. Keep in mind, this article is written by a guy who has spent more than three decades working in the military and intelligence communities, including multiple assignments to military and interagency counterterrorism programs. And these programs support both um, counterinsurgency and counterterrorism programs. And he is the one who made the observation that when, when you face people who are are, uh, backed into a corner. And this is what the elite think that they are doing with us right now. Look at the language that's being used. How they're trying to create, well, we need to create a whole new section of American law that deals with domestic terrorism. That is perfectly in keeping with that time-tested program of we've just got, we've got to target people legally so that we can declare them terrorists and then destroy them. That's what the elite are trying to do in our time. They've tried it previously in other times. They pulled out all the stops. They expect us to submit to their rule. And there are insurgents and there are terrorists. Insurgents fight for a cause. They're part of a tribe or a a group they have family to fear for. Insurgents, Insurgents can be cornered. They can be forced to surrender in untenable conditions, maybe even rehabilitated. Terrorists have no such connections. And when cornered, they will fight to the death, taking as many enemies with them as possible. And I, there's just no nice way to, to say this. You know, this is this guy, the guy who wrote this, uh, Max Morton, again, has seen this with his own eyes, particularly in the Middle East. And, and what we need to be aware of is right now, the uh, ruling elites strategy is to build a cauldron around us. And, and some of the legislative actions that they're using to build this, this uh, cauldron, like the Nazi army would use, is uh, through legislative actions like the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. That's where they want to declare, basically, anyone who refuses to agree with them could be a terrorist. H.R. 1, which is a federalized voting law, gun control, Supreme Court packing, making D.C. and Puerto Rico into states. You can see the kettle forming, says Max Morton. But he says, if you don't see a golden bridge, it's because there isn't one. And if you listen to the words of the politicians and their bureaucrat handlers in Washington, we can hear the language of the imperative submit with no post-capture options. And if you look at the current zero-sum game of political warfare, cancel culture and the weaponization of the Justice Department, federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies, we can see deliberate preparations to answer traditional Americans or what response. 
So they are going to sow the wind. The whirlwind has a long, you know, sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. That's had a very long history in America as a cautionary scripture. And what that means is it's instructing restraint from self-destructive behavior. But what of people who sow the wind in order to call forth the whirlwind as a weapon against their enemies? What are the people who call forth the whirlwind because despite the horrible destruction it will bring to their fellow man, they believe they will in some way profit from the misery? What do we, America, do with those people? So the bottom line, he says, is the elites have a plan. They think they're going to be fine because they're counting on your submission. But he says, in reality, they are not strong enough or smart enough to wield the can, the, the command, rather, submit. So they picked up the sword. So having picked up the sword, rather, they will watch it be taken from their hands and then used against them by their very enemy. Traditional Americans who understand there will be no tomorrow and whose eyes in whose eyes there's a fierceness, a fury that's beyond their world. Max Morton says it will be a fatal miscalculation that will bring the downfall of a cursed and failed American ruling elite. And perhaps if we can recapture the founding principles of our republic, the beginning of a new and better governance by and for the people, one truly dedicated to liberty and justice for all. Okay, that's probably the most dire thing you're going to hear today, and I hope it didn't, you know, send you over the edge into, okay, I'm in a terrible mood now. But I think we have to be honest about uh, what we are up against. And just because you think, yeah, you're right, they, they are consolidating power. And, you know, that doesn't mean that, oh, you must worship at the feet of Donald Trump. I don't know. Maybe you do. You know, doesn't matter to me if you do or not. The bottom line is there are those who are just consolidating their control over the American people at every turn in every possible way. And you and I have a choice. Do we submit or don't we? I know what my answer is, but I can't answer for you. That's something you're going to have to come up with for yourself. I will say this, even though I know this will make some people uncomfortable. In the same way that I believe that, uh, that there was divine providence at work in the founding of this nation, both in the securing of its independence when it fought against Great Britain, in the uh, Constitution that was uh, brought forth out of that, and I believe that God is still very much a God of miracles. And if you read the, the, the writings, the personal letters, the diaries, and the examples of what happened in that time of the nation's founding, there was a great deal of consensus that we are not winning this by ourselves. They were the kind of people who they had no problem with turning to God. They had no problem with, with asking for the, the favors of heaven to be with their cause because they really believed that moral truth was on their side. They weren't trying to seize power from, you know, the British people and rule over them. They simply wanted to free themselves from unreasonable rule, tyrannical rule. And if you want to want the specifics, look at the 27 grievances listed in the Declaration of Independence. The key is they were willing to stand and stand firm no matter what. They were willing to do whatever it takes to claim, use, and defend their rights. And by putting their faith in God, they had help when they most needed it. Why would it be any different today? We'll take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Okay, if, if there was a, a story that could get you a little bit hot under the collar, I think this could be the one. If, if For no other reason, this is a great illustration. This, this is proof, more proof, I guess, that uh, demonstrates just how COVID has been politicized. And this, this is coming in the recent revelation that uh, there were backroom dealings between the Centers for Disease Control and a powerful teachers union on when to reopen schools. In other words, all that talk about we follow the science... No, we uh, we actually see what uh, what happens when a teachers union influences the CDC school reopening guidelines. This is from Carrie McDonald at the Foundation for Economic Education. She says the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, was preparing to release school reopening guidelines in February, suggesting that in-person learning would be acceptable even if a community had a high coronavirus case rate. After meeting with the American Federation of Teachers, or AFT, the nation's second largest teachers union, the CDC allegedly backpedaled and revised their guidelines about in-person instruction using wording provided by the AFT. Sorry, I'm just going to sit back for a minute and let your surprised face, you know, wear off for a moment. Is that unbelievable? The New York Post broke the story last Saturday using emails received through a Freedom of Information Act request from Americans for Public Trust. That's a nonprofit organization focused on government accountability. Now, according to the Post, the CDC guidelines for in-person learning were changed after a lengthy email exchange and a call with AFT representatives. Instead of allowing for in-person schooling, regardless of uh, community COVID-19 case levels, the modified guidelines indicated that high virus transmission rates could prompt an update of CDC guidelines. Now, the teachers union also lobbied the CDC to include wording that would allow high-risk teachers to work remotely, as well as teachers and staff who live in a household with a high-risk person. Some of the AFT's suggested language was incorporated almost word for word into the February 12th CDC statement on school reopening plans. One email by AFT representative uh, Kelly Trotner to the CDC said, quote, thank you again for Friday's rich discussion about forthcoming CDC guidance and your openness to the suggestions made by our president, Randy Weingarten and the AFT, end quote. Now, the emails between AFT and CDC staff members, some of which were forwarded to CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, indicate that the teachers union referred to the CDC as its, quote, thought partner. And a call was scheduled in early February between Walensky and Weingarten prior to finalizing the CDC statement. Backroom dealings between a powerful government agency and a powerful public sector labor union are concerning, says Kerry McDonald particularly in this case when the federal government working through the CDC has so much power over education policy. As the economist F.A. Hayek said, once wide coercive powers are given to government agencies, such powers cannot be effectively controlled. Now, Kerry McDonald goes on to talk about how the CDC and Walensky, who warned of impending doom throughout the country on March 29th due to coronavirus case counts, may have instead facilitated impending Zoom as teachers unions continue to block school reopening plans and many students learned remotely. Indeed, as of April 19th, only 47 percent of U.S. public school districts were open full time 
in person for full-time in-person learning with most of the remaining districts operating on a hybrid model with some in-person and some remote learning. Carey says research over the past year has found that teacher union influence more than any other factor, including community virus transmission rates, determined whether or not a school district reopened for in-person learning. In their March 2021 paper in Social Science Quarterly, Corey DeAngelis and Christos Macritus concluded our findings that school closures are our findings that school closures are uncorrelated with the actual incidence of the virus, but are rather strongly associated with unionization implies that the decision to close schools has been a political, not scientific decision. By the way, Brown University researchers reached a similar conclusion last fall. They wrote, contrary to the conventional understanding of school districts as localized and nonpartisan actors, we find evidence that politics, far more than science, shaped school district decision-making. Now, Kerry McDonald goes on to say more parents may be discovering just how political school reopening plans actually are, particularly as they learn how connected the major teacher un- teachers' unions are to the Democratic Party and its platform. According to Education Next, the nation's two top teachers' unions have been among the leading financial contributors to national elections since 1990. They have formed an alliance with the Democratic Party, which receives the vast majority of their hard money campaign contributions, as well as in-kind contributions for get-out-the-vote operations. Teachers Union members comprise 10% of the delegates at the Democratic National Convention, where they represent the single largest organizational block of Democratic Party activists. Kerry goes on to say local teachers unions have also pinned their school reopening negotiations on the approval of a variety of progressive policies, including most recently the Los Angeles Teachers Union gain of child care subsidies for teachers and staff. Man, what good is a crisis if you don't have a way to, you know, do a little rent seeking or milk a few benefits out of it? Carrie's uh, Carrie's article is included in the show notes at the com. I would encourage you to check it out for yourself. She makes such a powerful case for why parents need to have more choice. The answer is found in greater school choice, greater educational choice, not in crafting tighter and tighter, you know, public policies. Give the parents the freedom to put their kids where they feel they're best served. That's where that's where the best solution is going to be found. All right, one final note. This is an article from J.D. Tussiel, writing for Reason.com. Freedom becomes a long-haul COVID victim. This is just a simple warning, but a very well-stated warning about uh, how emergency measures to deal with the crisis are likely to linger long after COVID-19 is gone. And you're already seeing some concern in some circles. And now, now granted, the, the political class will, will say this, you know, never, you'll never see a politician say this directly, but through various bureaucrats or through media mouthpieces, you know, their narrative managers at CNN and other sympathetic networks, you'll hear people openly opining, well, uh, hey, do we really want to lift this uh, sense of emergency and crisis? I mean, how else are we going to get people to do what we tell them to do? No, that's a, that's a serious conversation. I had never I had never heard of uh, long haul COVID, but apparently this is a term that refers to when patients recover from a COVID-19 infection, but still experience symptoms weeks and months later. But the world at large could be suffering lingering effects from the pandemic for years as emergency measures adopted to supposedly fight the virus become part of the permanent landscape. This is what J.D. Tusil is warning about. 
Long after the health concerns have been forgotten, the ultimate victim of long-haul COVID may turn out to be our freedom. This is a very legitimate concern here. I mean, you look at the number of different governors who assumed almost monarchical-type power to close businesses, to limit gatherings, curtail the right to travel, to limit personal freedom. And, of course, the federal government, too, has assumed vast power over everyday activity. And politicians have seized the opportunity to spend trillions of dollars. Why? Well, to stimulate the economy, but mostly to buy public favor and enact wish lists of policies under the guise of, oh, look what we're doing for the crisis. Throwing money at our favorite causes. Yeah, that's pretty clever. President Biden is turning COVID-era emergency measures into permanent expansions of federal power, using that as an excuse. That's according to Reasons Peter Suderman. For Biden, the pandemic has become a catch-all justification for a wide array of big government programs that he and the Democratic Party already wanted to pursue. And this is a worldwide phenomenon that's accelerating a global erosion of restraints on government power. Scary stuff. But you need to know about it. And I really believe that the, the solution is probably going to be found closer to home. In other words, uh, could be counties, might be cities, it might be states. I don't know if you get the whole states on board because they're pretty dependent on those federal dollars. But people adopting that we'll take care of ourselves. And just say no to whatever federal funding is being offered, because with it always comes control. This ratchet effect, you know, where government power is increased and the clampdown on liberty, uh, you know, squeezes even harder. It doesn't explain why limits on government, rule of law and protections for liberty were eroding even before COVID-19 arrived on the scene. J.D. Tussil says the ongoing years-long delay of liberal democracies is a puzzle with which experts grappled before the pandemic and no doubt will debate after it's passed. But he says the environment in which they continue their discussions is likely to be less free and open as a result of the symptoms of long-haul emergency measures that the world just can't shake. This is where you and I have a little bit of a decision to make. See, I'm, I'm determined. I'm going to live as freely as I possibly can, regardless of what some bureaucrat is telling me. My behavior is going to be peaceful. My conduct is going to be productive. But there's a legitimacy crisis in that uh, I just don't trust them anymore. This is The Brian Hyde Show.